In the consult, we discuss cases that are violent and sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. With me today is Bob Drew. I am a retired FBI agent who was also a profiler down at the Behavioral Analysis Unit in Quantico. And I'm Susan Kostler Drew, also a retired FBI agent and profiler. Before we get started, We just wanted to wish everyone a happy new year and thank you all for the great comments and feedback about our show. When we started this a few months ago, we had no idea what to expect and we're still learning as we go, but we're really enjoying what we're doing. And we're also very sorry we can't be more consistent with our show's schedule. Even though we are all retired from the FBI We still have full-time jobs and family commitments, so it's difficult to coordinate all of our schedules. And also, our production team is me and my brother, who also has a family and works full-time, but helps for free because he believes in us and our show. And he's also still very afraid of me, even after all these years. (laughs) So he does what I say. (laughs) But the work we're doing is a true labor of love, and we're going to continue to put out episodes when we can, and hopefully you can look at it as a nice surprise each time an episode drops. Today, we are going to be going over an unsolved single homicide. It's an old one from 1988, which was the year I graduated high school, but time passage can be an advantage as relationships change and technology advances. And this case, like so many others, is solvable. It involves the murder of a woman named Jane Gilboy, and she was killed on Monday, July 18th, 1988, and she was a 64-year-old white woman. She lived in Franklin, Massachusetts, which is Norfolk County, about 45 minutes from Boston. It's a nice, safe suburban town with good schools. A crime like this, very unusual to occur in Franklin. And in fact, I believe they only have two open homicide cases. According to Jane's boyfriend, with whom she resided at the time, He left the house around 5.30 a.m. to go to his job as a truck driver. Jane also went to work that day as usual. She worked at a chemical company, and her co-workers described her as being in a good mood that day. Jane clocked out of work at about 4.02 p.m., and her estimated time of arrival home would have been about 4.15 p.m., and that's without any detours, and there was no indication that she took any detours that day. At approximately 6.15 p.m., 
Jane's boyfriend arrived home from work and found her lying on the floor in the living room. She had been severely beaten about her head and her throat had also been cut. There was no evidence of forced entry and the only door unlocked was the back door through which Jane had entered upon arriving home. And there was no evidence of ransacking within the residence and the only items missing were Jane's purse and a carving knife, which was likely the murder weapon. Before we get into her victimology, let's talk a little bit about the days leading up to Jane's murder. Jane spent the weekend on Cape Cod while her boyfriend stayed at the residence. She was visiting a friend of hers and apparently spent a pleasant but uneventful weekend there. She returned to her house on Sunday evening, the 17th of July, between 5 and 6. It was a very warm night, so Jane slept downstairs while her boyfriend slept upstairs in the master bedroom. As I already mentioned, the day of the murder, Jane's morning was normal and her day at work was normal until she arrived home and was immediately attacked upon opening her back door. In any case analysis, an important aspect of it is victimology. Victimology being an assessment of a victim's normal habits, routines, their personality traits and characteristics, their style of interaction with others, their likes, dislikes, etc. We want to form the most complete picture of a crime victim. And although it may seem unnecessary in terms of hard evidence, in terms of behavioral analysis, it's crucial. And you will hear me say this in every analysis we conduct. The more you know about your victim, the more you know about your offender. Bob, do you want to start the victimology for this case? Jane's husband died in 1979. And she sold the house that they shared. And she purchased land. And she set up a mobile home. Then eventually built a new home on that land. Yes. She stayed in contact with family, had some conflict with some family members, but nothing of an extreme nature. She lived with a boyfriend that she had met at a dance. She also had a downstairs tenant. She was fine with that tenant. It was an adult male. That tenant did have people coming over and occasionally staying with him, and Jane was not agreeable to that. And this irritated her enough that she addressed it with these people on one occasion when they were being loud. And that resulted in somewhat of a confrontation. And eventually she made arrangements to have this tenant evicted. She was having that arranged at the time of her death, actually. And I'd add that it was several years between when her husband had passed and when she had met the boyfriend. Yes, And additionally, five, six years that she had been having this relationship with the boyfriend. And there was no indication there of any particular domestic abuse or issues that had come to either the attention of family or of the police. And none whatsoever. And I think the example of the confrontation with her tenant and the fact that she's willing to address problems. If she has a problem with someone, she addresses the problem with them and she could be confrontational. And that was a big part of her personality. She was assertive and outspoken. And if met with a counter argument, rather than back off or silence herself, she could become confrontational in supporting her point. In that particular case, when she was dealing with the tenants, guests, it definitely got to the point of being confrontational. 
and this personality was pervasive across any relationship, whether it be with a family, intimate partner, or a complete stranger. Absolutely. And despite having lost her husband, she was very independent, and this was her house, and they were technically guests in her home, and she wasn't going to put up with that. One of her strong habits was that of being very orderly, very neat, and very clean. The condition of her house reflected that. She was a spotless housekeeper. One of those things was she didn't want her carpets dirty. So people entering her house, uh, it was mandatory that you remove your shoes. That included herself. It included her boyfriend and everyone else. It was just an overarching rule for the home. I support that rule. (laughs) So do I. I like a clean house as well. (laughs) Yeah. And and also Jane, she was in very good health. Mm -hmm. She worked full time. She held down two jobs and traveled alone in her vehicle regularly, day and nighttime hours. Mm -hmm. And she was also security conscious. She kept her doors locked, windows locked all the time. Although she could be a hard personality to deal with, she was pretty generous with family and friends. She was frugal by nature, but she did provide help to family and friends. So generally we could describe Jane as being a low to moderate risk of becoming a victim of violent crime based on some of these factors that we've discussed. She was habitually assertive and confrontational with people at times. She could be outspoken. She could be critical and strong-willed. On the other hand, though, her lifestyle was such that she did not routinely or even occasionally put herself apart from her personality and possibility of getting into some kind of confrontation, didn't really have any kind of a lifestyle that would have put her into situations that might be of a higher risk. Generally, her her lifestyle, as it was, apart from her personality, was definitely low risk. She was security conscious. I would say the one thing that might elevate that a little bit was the fact that she was pretty habituated in her routine. So someone who might be observing her would know that she left the house every morning at a certain time. She came home at a certain time. She had a way that she entered her house at a certain time, et cetera. And those things can possibly elevate a risk. Absolutely. Especially if it's a targeted murder, they know her schedule. They know who's going to be in the house, who's not going to be in a house. So some of her low-risk lifestyle can actually, in this case, make her a little bit higher risk. And even though she could be outspoken and confrontational, certainly people who are like that aren't necessarily high-risk victims. But in this case, when we are analyzing and looking at every little detail, it has to be a consideration because she's otherwise very low-risk. Where does her risk come from? In her life situation, unlike many widows who live by themselves, thereby increase their risk somewhat, she, aside from being very security conscious, she also lives with two adult males, one of which is her boyfriend and the other is a tenant. This lowers her risk for, say, random selection by a a burglar or an intended assailant just by mere fact that she is not alone in the house and moreover has two adult males there. 
that is something that was to her advantage as far as her risk level. It brought her risk level down. And neither of those adult males, at least to our knowledge in the analysis of this crime, neither of those adult males were any risk to her at any time. Based on the review of all this information, let's go over the analysis of this crime. Bob, do you want to start with the motive? Sure. How someone is murdered and why someone is murdered is the very basic building stone of the rest of the analysis. We know that Jane was found in her living room, you know, lying prone with a severe head injury from a blunt force trauma, and her throat was slashed. Just from that, we know there were two implements that were used to cause her death, one being a blunt object and the other being a cutting object. Neither of these objects were found at the scene. What we believe, based on how the crime occurred, was that the offender entered the home that day very quickly, that Jane was engaged in her usual behavior. She had just opened the door, or at very least, the first thing she did was prop the back door open with a a mop handle. And at that point, an offender quickly approaches, and their first interaction is the offender strikes a very heavy blow on her head with a blunt object. This knocks her to the ground, and if she is conscious, she is barely conscious. She is severely wounded by this assault, but is not dead at that point. The offender, seeing that, enters the home, obtains a knife from within Jane's home, returns to where Jane is lying, and slashes her throat in one very deep and deliberate cut across her throat. That, combined with the head injury, causes her death. What we can say from this, partially from this anyway, her death did not result from the offender not being able to control her or having the intention to rob her and an interaction leads to an accidental death or changes the plan to where she now has to be murdered. What it does speak to is the fact that the intention all along on the part of the offender, was to murder her. Murder her quickly, murder her efficiently. That was the intention. So we can rule out that this was what would be known as a push-in robbery. That is not the case. Now that's backed up by the fact that she has valuables in clear view from where the offender would have been. No valuables were removed. And in fact, the only things that investigators determined were missing was a carving knife likely to have been the murder weapon, and Jane's purse, which contained nothing of real value and very little cash. Jane actually was in the home prior to the offender. If an offender were intent on burglarizing the house and saw someone in it, it would be very unlikely, if the goal was just to take things, that they would continue with their plan while they knew someone was there. In this case, the entrance to the house was made because she was there, because the intention and the motive was to kill her. There was no sexual assault either. No indications of sexual assault. No clothes displacement, no injuries, no forensic evidence. This was not a sexually motivated homicide. No. This is a targeted and very intentional planned murder. 
it is interesting that the murder occurs in full daylight at approximately 4.15 to 4.30 on a sunny July afternoon. This is not a normal, quote, time for someone to commit a murder. Or a burglary. Or or a burglary. If the intent was to burglarize, going in at 4.15 is not the optimal time because people will be coming home from work. Burglars seek to avoid people. Not in this case. This offender wanted to encounter Jane. And he did not want to encounter anyone else. And there are two other men who are living there. The time of day was intentionally chosen. This was not a random selection of the time. This was decided because there was some knowledge on the part of the offender that Jane was alone. Now, this could be long-term knowledge. I mean, people will ask, well, does that mean there was long-term surveillance? Not necessarily. If you see someone open a door under the circumstances that Jane opened hers, you don't see any other vehicles in the driveway. You see hers pull in and she gets out and unlocks and opens the door and you're viewing that. Your presumption would be that she's entering into a vacant space. The time of day is crucial, however, for the offender to see that she is entering the home under those circumstances the offender had to have been at some sort of visual vantage point where he could see this. Why he would be there then is because there was an expectation that she would be entering the house alone. Now, that is a very small window of opportunity to commit this murder because normally her boyfriend came home within an hour after she did. So around 5.15 to 5.30, he would normally be home investigation found out that on the day of her murder, her boyfriend was delayed at work. And this was verified by folks that worked with him. He was delayed due to an equipment problem and had to stay later to address that problem. Even still, it left approximately one hour for an offender to enter the home, commit the murder and leave. And this is where Jane's habits really show how quickly this all happened because we know she was security conscious. And in addition, after removing her shoes, she would open windows, but then also secure doors, et cetera. She is found with her shoes still on, which means she didn't even have time to remove the shoes before she was attacked. Her keys were also found close to her body, which means she didn't have time to put those away after entering the house. No other doors or windows had been opened, just the back door propped open with the mop, which is what she normally did. So this blitz kind of attack happened very quickly within seconds of her opening the door because she had no opportunity at all to follow through with any of her other habitual routine. The other thing that lends support to the fact that she was attacked in a blitz style and prior to her even realizing that the offender was anywhere near her was the fact that she didn't turn around. Again, we're talking about someone who's very outspoken, who's potentially confrontational. She didn't even turn around. There are no indications that there were any defensive wounds from either weapon. She didn't receive bruising or blunt force injury on her arms, nor did she receive any cutting injuries on her hands or arms. As it appeared, she was never even aware of the presence of the offender 
right up to the point where she was struck on the head. This means it was an incredibly quick and stealthy approach, a very efficient and effective means of disabling her and a very efficient and effective means of finding another weapon to ensure she was dead with no hesitation. This was a very purposeful action. And the offender had the weapon with him, the initial weapon. He brought it with him because there's nothing missing from the house. There's no indication that he took that initial weapon from the house. So he had it, shows his intention again. He's going to use it. He's going to use it immediately when he sees her. And that's what he did. And when he beats her about the head and he realizes maybe she's not dead, maybe I need to ensure this, he goes and gets the carving knife and slits her throat. So although he planned what he was going to do, there is an element here. He had to alter his plan. And he altered his plan by obtaining the second weapon from within her home. That was not part of the original plan. That was added to the plan based upon the offender's realization that the initial attack had not been successful in in ending her life. But what's interesting is that it likely was successful. The offender just didn't realize it because she was severely beaten. The best laid plans, especially when it comes to murder, often are insufficient to get the job done the way the offender wants it done. Or the way they had imagined that it would have occurred. Yes. There are always some factors that occur that are unexpected. But this offender had a cool enough head that the alteration to his plan was a quick remedy. There was no panic. It was a quick remedy an effective solution. This is a very interesting point. And when we get into offender profile, we can further explore that. So we've already talked a little bit about why we believe Jane was targeted. Why was she targeted? The adage that most people are killed by people they know is certainly supported by statistics. And the first thing investigators may want to consider is, was this done by an intimate partner? Factually, we know he was at work that day, And he was the one who discovered her body at approximately 6.30 p.m. that evening. It's been verified that he was not there. The other thing, there was nothing in their past that would have indicated that there were ongoing domestic violence issues. The fact that he was the reporting party coming home approximately two hours after her death, he was ruled out and there was nothing to contradict the alibi. There were no suspicions that the alibi may have been faulty. And I think we've described how quickly this all happened. In the context of an intimate relationship, it is more likely that there would be a face-to-face confrontation that escalates to violence. This was planned. This would have to be a planned homicide on the part of an intimate partner, which in this case, we don't have an intimate partner that could have been present. But even aside from that, the quickness, the fact, the initial disabling assault occurred behind her back and quickly followed up by a second attack from a knife that quickly ended her life. There was no gratuitous violence, which you often see in an emotionally charged murder. You see gratuitous violence in domestic homicides, certainly violence leading up to the actual murderous assault. And there would be evidence of that on her body. There was none of that. The coolness of the offender's emotional level is a very interesting thing in that after engaging in extreme violence, 
which with very few exceptions causes anxiety, panic, certainly distress on the part of the offender. Even offenders that have been in numerous confrontations. It's very unusual that someone after assaulting someone in that extreme manner would have the presence of mind to almost immediately realize that they needed to alter their plan, find very quickly a second weapon and engage in that unhesitatingly and effectively to end the victim's life. This cool presence of mind indicates someone who has definitely engaged in violence before, perhaps not murder, but has engaged in violence before and enough and possesses the personality characteristics to the degree they could maintain this presence of thought despite the extreme provocation of... Of the act of murder itself. Yes. When someone engages in violence, even the coolest of heads become a bit rattled. And in this case, you don't see that. You say someone who stayed very much... Unemotional. Unemotional and uh, mission-oriented. Yes. It does lack the emotion that one would have if they were in an intimate relationship with the victim. Mm -hmm. And I think we should also point out there's no indication in the investigation that her boyfriend was an abuser. And there's no indication that any of her close family, the people that she had close contact were abusers. But what we do see is this offender had at least one prior contact with the victim. The nature of this interaction is linked directly to his motivation. It's retaliatory. This is not a random selection of a victim. It is targeted. It is targeted on Jane. There is certainly intentionality that is displayed throughout this crime. It is clear that she was his intended victim. Why? Well, if we rule out some sort of upset within an intimate relationship, which I think that clearly can be eliminated in the analysis, then what we have left is someone who had a grudge. We previously talked about that there was no indication at all of any kind of sexual motivation. And also within the investigation that there doesn't seem to be any kind of financial motivation for this. So with the elimination of other typical types of motivation for this to happen, a revenge or retribution motivation certainly percolates up to the top. This offender has the ability to alter his plan to ensure Jane's death, which is the intention of his whole course of action in this case. If he were interested in financial gain, sexual interaction, then he could have altered his plan with just the same cool head and engaged in theft or engaged in some sort of sexual activity. He did not choose to do that. He did choose to obtain a weapon and end her life quickly and efficiently, all of which lends support to the assertion that his intention, sole intention, was to murder Jane. He wasn't making a statement about her or to her. He wasn't making a statement to investigators when they found her. This was strictly the most practical, efficient manner to achieve his goal of ending her life. And if we could talk just a little bit about why we are continuing to say he and why we think that this is a white male, that one of the things that we do as part of the analysis 
is look at the demographics and the statistics from a particular area. And in this case, in looking back at FBI crime reports, et cetera, back during this time period now, which I think is also important, we are talking about back in 1988. At the time, nine out of every 10 women murdered in the United States were killed by males. Also during that time, 84% of white murder victims were murdered by white assailants, in particularly in single victim, single offender situations. Further, the neighborhood in which this murder occurred was inhabited by a predominantly white population. These are all things that need to be considered. So when you hear us say he, in our heads, we're probably thinking a white offender. Remember that on a summer afternoon during daylight hours, so in a predominantly white neighborhood during the daytime, a non-white offender is more likely to be noticed in such an environment as opposed to a white offender. He's just going to blend in to the environment more easily than a person of color would. And while we can't rule out, there certainly have been exceptions to this. They, as you said, there's only 84% of white on white. So there are exceptions. It can be other things, but looking at the totality of the circumstances, it is more likely than not that this offender was a white male based on statistics and the environment in which we know that this homicide occurred. One of the things we could say about the offender, we touched on it just to emphasize it, is that not only is this individual violent, frequently enough in his past where he is, for lack of a better word, he's comfortable with engaging in violence, much more so than the average person. Another thing is, because we believe this to be a retaliatory murder, we know that this individual is someone who holds grudges. This is probably not the only time he's ever held grudges. And holds grudges to the extreme. People he's holding grudges against might not even realize it. Right. And his reaction to slights is disproportionate and extreme. He probably forms more grudges than the average person. And these grudges are much more intense than the average person. He might be seen as being short-tempered, but not to be confused with someone who flies off the handle and immediately engages in reactive violence. This person is able to hold a grudge, ruminate about it, plan to exact revenge, and then exact revenge efficiently and effectively up to and including murder. This is not your common individual. This is someone who, on one hand, you could describe as emotionally immature in that there is this extreme reaction to slights and, if not emotionally immature, at least socially limited in his selection of responses. He, he hasn't got an array of responses within himself to select from. People that 
would know this individual could describe him as someone to overreact to a situation that maybe they were all involved in and say, wow, this guy has a tendency to really just escalate or take offense one and or the other at something that the rest of his associates might say, you know, wow, this guy really blew this out of proportion kind of thing. I think that's the type of extreme reaction that we're talking about here. Whereas the quote unquote normal person might say, you know, get a little bit offended, but this guy is going to take it as, as a real insult and feel the need to be able to respond to it. In this one incident, he is not identified. But these personality characteristics we're speaking about are lifelong characteristics. And so it's likely that he's engaged in retaliation and violence, et cetera, in the past and wasn't as successful as he was on this occasion. That would lend itself to an assertion that he may have a criminal history. He may have had problems in school regarding his discipline. Negative interaction with authority figures like teachers, police officers. Yep. I mean, even parents for that matter. Employers as he got older. If he is extremely agitated like that because of perceived slights that he perceives more often than most, there may be within him ways of mitigating those feelings, which could include substance abuse or at least substance use, to take himself down a notch until he is actually able to vent through the actual act of retaliation. In this case, we have moved away, at least looking at the behavior, looking at the crime analysis that we've done, we're moving away from someone who's close to the victim. But we're looking at someone who's had at least one interaction with the victim. So so not a lot of interaction, but enough to know her, to have had an issue with her of some sort and to know her habits to some extent so that he could attack her at the most opportune time. And that issue that he had with her was one that others would likely perceive as that's just Jane minor, but one that this offender clearly took great offense with to the point of wanting to blitz attack and murder this woman, which really goes against, universally violates societal rules, morals, and standards. Now, this was a deliberate homicide in order to revenge a perceived slight. That is not the way that most of us would handle that situation. And so this individual is someone that is going to stand out because that type of response to a perceived affront is going to be a personality characteristic that it would have been present for his entire life. And so, which would be noticed by those that were closest to him. Or Or even those who aren't. Or even those who weren't. Yes. Those that either family members or fellow employees or associates, et cetera, that type of reaction would be obvious. Right. And another thing to point out about him is even when he gets really mad and he feels like he needs to seek revenge, he doesn't do it face to face. He doesn't need to. He'll do it behind the back. He doesn't need that face to face interaction. The service to his ego 
is not the domination of another individual. It is accomplishing his goals effectively and addressing a slight extremely. But he doesn't need to make a point in last-minute domination of, of a victim. These things are wasted on him. Those are more emotionally based. This is clearly more of a predatory application of violence than it is an emotional application of violence. And this person has more of a predator personality, much more than someone who is emotionally reactive, where they cannot delay their retribution or their revenge. Probably the majority of people who take extreme exception to slights are of the type that would immediately react. Whether or not it was to their advantage or not, their emotions would take over and they would immediately react to the slight. It's a predatory act. I've made a mental note of a slight. It has to be reckoned with. And now I'm going to go about creating an effective plan to exact that revenge with minimal problems for me. They will not identify me. I will not be punished for it. I will not have to answer for it. And yet my, my goal will be accomplished. And that is a very different mindset than someone who is a hothead. This is not a hothead. This is someone who seethes and ruminates. Exactly. And this murder, just to remind the listeners, is in Franklin, Massachusetts, 1988. It's Norfolk County, 45 minutes from Boston. It's not a high profile crime, but we're covering this because now that we have more listeners out there, this offender may have moved on, may have moved other places. And maybe someone out there may recognize these characteristics, know this individual, had interactions with this individual, and they may know something. The other thing, as I mentioned early on, that as time passes, relationships change. This offender may very well have told someone about this. Perhaps someone listening out there will come forward and provide the necessary information to the police department. And I will be giving that number out that will help solve the case. If you have any information about the murder of Jane Gilboy, which occurred on July 18th of 1988, please call the Franklin Police Department tip line at 508-440-2780. That's 508-440-2780. Or you can email tips at franklinpolice.com. That's tips at franklinpolice.com. All calls and information will be kept in the strictest confidence. And that is it for this episode of The Consult. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit The Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the consult pod. Thank you for listening.